0: Today on Something You Should Know, what most people do wrong when they're having trouble hearing someone on the phone. Then, while the internet is great, it has rendered many things obsolete, like the home phone, maps, and the Rolodex.
1: It's so interesting about the Rolodex because of what the Rolodex used to symbolize, it was a power thing. And what it symbolized is that idea of you are who you know. And now, you're not who you know, we all know everyone
0: also a simple way to remember names when you meet someone that really seems to work and the fascinating connections between money and happiness.
2: What scientists have found is people who have five or more friends outside their immediate family are 50 percent happier than people who don't. Well it takes time to cultivate those friendships and if you're so busy earning so that you can spend more and more and more you don't have time to invest in that.
0: All this today on Something You Should Know. Ask a business owner or manager who's looking to hire someone, and they'll often use the word hope. As in, I hope I find someone good. I hope this person works out. You don't want hope. You want to nail this perfectly, because the right people can make all the difference to your business. No, you don't need hope. You need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I think makes Indeed special is that it's not just names and resumes. It's a system that guides you through the hiring process to help you get the right candidate for the job. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your job's more visibility at indeed.com/something you just go to indeed.com/something right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on something you should know indeed.com/something terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed
3: Something You Should Know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers.
0: That's me. Welcome to Something You Should Know. There's something I I bet you've done, I know I've done, you see people do this all the time, and that is you're talking on the phone in a noisy environment. And so in order to hear the person on the other end of the call better, you cover your other ear or you put your finger in your other ear to block out the noise, which seems to make sense, but it doesn't really help as it turns out. The reason it's hard to hear is because that ambient noise around you is going into your mouthpiece and coming back out in your ear that's held up to the phone. And it's mixed in with the other person's voice on the other end of the call. And that's why it's so difficult to hear what the other person is saying. So you're much better off muting the phone or covering the mouthpiece of the phone while the other person is talking and you're listening. You'll be able to understand what the other person is saying much better than sticking your finger in your other ear. And that is something you should know. Think about all the things the Internet has done for you. What it allows you to do that you could never do before. It's truly remarkable. You can look up anything. You can send a message to anyone. You can play games. You can work. You can talk. You can share. On and on and on. On the other hand, there are many things the Internet has taken away from us. The encyclopedia, the Rolodex, the kitchen phone, even the ability to disconnect from the world. It's something Pamela Paul has taken a fascinating look at. Pamela is the editor of the New York Times Book Review. She's also host of the New York Times Book Review podcast, and she's author of the book, 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet. Hi, Pamela. Welcome.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So why do you think this is important to discuss, what the Internet has taken away? I mean, it could seem that you're just kind of... Pining for the good old days before the internet. But the internet has given us so much. Why focus on what it's taken away?
1: Well, it's hard not to think about the internet all the time because it infuses our lives in every way. But I think that when we do think about the internet, we're often in forward motion, right? We're like, wait, what is this new thing? How does this new thing work? But, you know, does everybody else have this new thing? Should I download that app? Should I check out that website? I think what we do less frequently is kind of pause and say, wait a minute, <laughs> what did I do before I split the check with Zelly with all my friends? Like, how did we do this? <laughs> what was the method? How did I know what was even in my bank account before I could just go online and check my account? So I wanted to pause and rewind a second and kind of just stay in that place and and, and figure out like, what is it that we used to do something
0: that the internet has replaced that we used to do and it's hard to imagine we used to do this is like let's say you and i go to the mall together and you go your way and i go my way because we want to look at different things well how do we meet up how do we meet up later to go home and you know now we just text okay i'm done i'm over at the food court meet me there but before, you had to be very precise. I'll meet you at, you know, 9.30 in the food court, and we'll go home then.
1: All of that is gone. And it's interesting that you talk about, like, well, how did people, like, meet up at Disneyland? Or, like, if one person was going on the line to get the tickets, like, how did they communicate that to the person who thinks they're meeting, you know, at the front of the theater? Whatever it might be. Like, somehow, we all got by. And yet it's incomprehensible to us. I mean, one example to think is really interesting when parents talk about why and when they allow their children to get their own phone. The reason, the thing that breaks them is, well, my kid is now commuting or going to school on his own. And so I want to be able to reach him or her. I want to know where she or he is. I want to be able to say like, hey, guess what? The piano teacher canceled. You don't have to come home for your lesson or whatever it is. And the fact, the idea that you might not be able to communicate with your child at that point is so incomprehensible to so many of us parents that it's frightening. It's frightening to think like someone might not be able to get in touch with me at any moment.
0: Another thing that I don't like about the internet that, that it has taken away from everybody is the ability really to get away, to, you know, go away for the weekend or go on a vacation or just go away for a couple of hours and nobody knows where you are. You just, you're just gone. That sense of, of solitude is always, it's, you're always being nagged. You know, what am I missing? What, who's texting me now? And it's really hard
1: to have that. And it's hard on both ends, right? So it's hard for you, the person who's trying to flee, you know, the world. And it's really hard for the outside world to disconnect with you. Like the idea of being unreachable is now essentially a slap in the face. Like no one is ever unreachable. Um, And it's interesting, you know, when you watch movies or TV shows and everything is built around the idea That either you can reach someone at any given moment, and the only reason why you can't is if they ignore you, you know, and they dismiss the phone call. But here's the other part of it, which is that even if you do disconnect, even if you are some superhuman and you're like, you know what, just not going to turn my phone on, or maybe I'm even going to leave it at home, the problem is you still know it's there. You know, you still know there are lots of people reaching you. They're just hitting like a wall of silence. And that knowledge just affects that idea of getting away that we all miss.
0: Related to that, and it's the first thing in your book, is is boredom. And and I'm fascinated by this, that anytime anybody feels bored, they just go pick up their phone and either play a game or send an email or send a text or whatever. Nobody's just allowed to sit and be still because nobody thinks... That that's a good thing, that you, you've you got to fill up every moment with something. And if there's nothing, there's always the internet.
1: Right. And the internet is everything. The internet is diversion. It's entertainment. It's information. And the truth is, the reason why boredom is, I mean, boredom is boring. You know, it's not all great. Um, but the reason boredom is important or experiencing that emptiness is that you have to stop all of the input in order to generate output you need those empty moments in order to come up with ideas of your own in order to be creative and i you know there's a reason why you might come up with ideas when either you're driving like on a long highway and it's not that exciting or you're in the shower and you pretty much know how to clean yourself by now so your mind can wander that's because There's nothing else coming in. You know, there's no new exciting information. So you come up with ideas. And we used to have those moments far more frequently when we were in the backseat of the car, for example. But now, what we do during those empty moments, and I'm as guilty as anyone, is like, you're like, oh, I have 12 minutes to wait for the next train. I am going to play spelling bee and get. You know, queen bee status, or I am going to read all the headlines in the news, or I'm going to listen to that podcast. I'm going to go to the next chapter in the audiobook I'm playing. I'm going to rise to level five in whatever game that I'm into. I am going to check my Facebook slash Twitter slash Instagram slash Snapchat. We, we, we essentially use up all of our time. And the time that goes unused, it almost feels at this point again, like a kind of dereliction. (laughs) Like what am I doing um, with uh, you know, with myself if I'm not doing something?
0: One thing that the internet doesn't seem to have taken away like you think it should is books that there is some resistance to reading. And for me, I mean, I would much rather read a real book than to read an ebook uh, and you know a lot plenty of people read ebooks but there, there there does seem to be some resistance that people still like books
1: people do like books you know look um, just like video didn't kill the radio star ebooks did not kill the print book it's really nice to hold that object in her hand um it's really nice to be able to collect a book it's nice to flip through a book you know there are advantages for some readers of reading on a device. And those advantages are not insignificant. Like for people who have vision problems, um, you can enlarge the type. Um, And then for people who um, might have other learning challenges, it's sometimes much easier to listen to a book online, you know, via Audible or whatever it might be, or to have a visually enhanced text. So like there are definitely pluses. But for me, and I think for a lot of people, it's that sort of tangible tactile experience of turning the pages it's being able to flip and say wait how many how many pages left in this chapter you know um it's looking at illustrations it's checking out the index it's looking at the inside flap
0: yeah it's it's being able to hold a real physical thing and something else that you mentioned that that I haven't thought about until I saw it in your book is the Rolodex. And I imagine you can still buy a Rolodex, but I don't know anybody that would use it. But there was something about having a Rolodex and it was like, you know, if you had a lot of cards in it with names and phone numbers on it, that that was, that was real cool.
1: It's so interesting about the Rolodex because, you know, it's a couple of things. One is obviously it's it's an actual physical item, right? And I have one on my desk And it's like covered in dust. I mean, I haven't stuck a card in there in years and yet I can't bring myself to throw it away. So there's the physical thing. And then there's just the idea of what the Rolodex used to symbolize. It was a power thing. If you went into like the office of, say, a big Hollywood agent or a senior vice president at an investment bank, there might not be just one Rolodex, but like three Rolodexes, you know, and there were those different kinds. You had the actual like flip old-fashioned circular Rolodex, and then you had the ones that were like the long rectangular um, Rolodexes that lay flat. And what it symbolized is that idea of you are who you know. And now you're not who you know. We all know everyone. If you want to be connected to Beyonce, by all means, you go and follow her. We can all be linked to someone. We can be, quote unquote, their friend with a certain amount of ease, or at the very least, one of their followers. Um, It's just not that big a deal to know anyone anymore. In fact, now it's harder not to know someone. One of the ways in which this manifests during my day-to-day work life is as, an, as the editor of the New York Times Book Review is that we're trying to assign books, ideally, to be reviewed by people who don't know the author. Um, and you know, back in the day, in the before times, that used to be something really simple. You'd be like, do you know the author? No, never met him. But now they might say, well, I don't know the author of that book, but we're Facebook friends, but I've never met her. Or I've noticed that we have 157 connections in common on LinkedIn, but I don't think I've ever met her. Or we once texted, but it was a group text and it wasn't direct. So what does it really mean to know someone anymore? We're discussing
0: all the things we've lost to the internet and why it's important to discuss them. My guest is Pamela Paul. She is author of the book, 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet. Always find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine & More. With so many great bottles to choose from at the lowest price, it's easy to find your favorite Cabernet or Chardonnay. Or maybe you're more of a whiskey drinker. One of their single-barrel bourbons is sure to please. With a little help from one of their friendly guides, find the perfect bottle that's just right for you. Hosting friends or family and don't have time to shop in-store? Curbside pickup and delivery available in most areas. Visit TotalWine.com to learn more. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B-21. So Pamela, one of the things you talk about is you say we've lost humility to the internet. So what do you mean by that?
1: Well, look, the internet encourages us to kind of strut, um, to like show our plumes and our feathers and to say like, look at my kid. Um, Oh, wow, I just did this. Look at how many friends I have. Look at all my connections. Let me tell you about my latest job promotion. And one thing we know also is that On social media, people respond best to faces, to photographs of other people as opposed to objects. So that really also encourages the idea of selfies and sort of constantly photographing yourself and documenting yourself. And in a way, it turns us all into reality TV stars. Like we're all kind of lightly performing And again, I don't think it's that we're all jerks or show-offs, but it does kind of reward that behavior. And the other interesting part of that, we're also all kind of celebrities too. And what I mean by that, it's not the fun way. It's not like the rich and and, and, and famous uh, and powerful way. It's the downside of celebrity way, which means that anyone can say anything about us at any time. And we basically can't, control it. And we can be seen by anyone at any time. And we can be talked about by anyone at any time. And something that we do can go viral and be commented endlessly on YouTube. And we don't, you know, have any control over that. You're not in control of the fact that everyone else is photographing you, is commenting on you, is turning you, videotaping you, turning you into some kind of meme. I mean, it's interesting. I was talking to a friend And she has a family relative who suffers from mental illness. And this person is posting about my friend online um, and posting photographs and telling stories about her that are not true. There's really not a lot you can do about that in this country. And that's kind of frightening. It feels like you're out of control. Well, that's the downside of celebrity. That's what celebrities have always had, you know, they've had stalkers and people who say untrue things and write rumors and, you know, print terrible stories about them in tabloids. It's kind of turned us all into celebrities as well. So, that's not the humility part of it, but that's just kind of another extension of the fact that we are all Observing and being observed, and commenting about one another at all times.
0: One of the f- interesting things is this is particularly interesting to me because I have this um, uh, useless ability to remember phone numbers. And you used to have to remember people's phone numbers. I could I used to have friends and my grandmother and ev- my everybody's phone number. I could remember. Nobody remembers phone numbers anymore because there's no need for it. And I bet it would be hard for people it's a, i think it's a, a skill probably that you have to practice to do
1: oh for sure i mean i can tell you my phone number growing up 9447091 my best friend was 9446327 i don't know what my daughter's phone number is i mean you could put a gun to my head and say call her and if i didn't have her name you know on saved in my favorites and uh, you know could just click there or ask siri i would not be able to reach her
0: and also, and there's another one in your list, the, the kitchen phone. We used to have a kitchen phone, and that was like the, that was like the place. I mean, you, everybody talked on the kitchen phone. Now nobody talks in front of anybody else.
1: Yeah. The kitchen phone was the portal to the house. That was the only way that anyone could get in without walking through the front door. And for someone to get in they, and, and to go through that portal, there was often a gatekeeper, So if someone was trying to reach your brother, maybe you or your mom would pick up the phone and you'd say who's calling? And now you knew and you knew how long they talked for. And maybe you could listen in to have the conversation. And all of that is lost. You know, it used to be that you had the kitchen phone, right? And it had that long coil, like and that coil would always end up kind of twisted and going in the wrong direction. And once it like had sort of gone the wrong turn. You could never get it back. Do you remember that? Like you'd spend that time yep. playing with that coil while you were on the phone, trying to untwist it to get it to go right again.
0: Yeah, used to have that, remember case, you used to have to hang it, like stand on a chair and hold it way up high so it would unwind itself.
1: Totally, totally. Periodically you had to kind of let it go and then let it like wing, 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 wing and like unwirl. And that was really fun. It, I also remember chewing on it, which is I'm sure really dangerous and yes. toxic.
0: Well, I asked you this at the very beginning, and I'm going to bring it up again, because here we are joking about the kitchen phone and unwinding the cord and remembering all this very nostalgically. But what's the point of that? I mean, those things are gone. They're gone. So let's move on.
1: Well, I would say a few things. First of all, absolutely. It's not all bad that these things are lost. Some of these things that are lost are good and bad. For one example of that is, you know, being the only one. So, being the only one, that could be a good thing. That could be a bad thing. But on the internet, you're never the only one. You can always find out, like, let's say your really cool original hobby is taking old, like, soda bottles and water bottles and constructing enormous sculptures of birds out of them and photographing them in these beautiful landscapes. And you'd think, I am the only one on the planet who does this. But you go online and chances are you'll find dozens of people who do the same weird craft or hobby that you do. And not only that, but they've been doing it for longer and they do it much better than you ever did. If you have a child and he's born with a rare genetic disorder and in the old days, it would be really impossible to find other people to talk to about what that experience was like to give each other recommendations for treatments and doctors. Now you can immediately find a community of people online who you can commiserate with and exchange information with. And that's amazing. So I'm not saying that all of this is terrible and that all of it is negative. Like some of it is pretty good.
0: You know, and the, some of it is is pining for the... Because like one of the things you talk about is the, uh, you know, record albums. and But the fact is record albums sucked i mean they scratched they warped they were terrible they would sound crappy and even cds would skip and you know yeah i kind of miss them but i don't really miss them
1: ah see okay i agree with everything you said but i also like just the smell of that record and like and the and the just the fun thing of like putting the needle onto, you know, placing that needle. Like I do remember when they all then became automatic and then it was like, that was a very fancy thing to have a stereo where the needle kind of automatically landed in the right place. But so I do miss aspects of records. And what I miss again, beyond the physical thing is maybe just the patience of listening to the full side of an album and not skipping ahead, not immediately, you know, replaying something because you didn't want to have to get up off the sofa and like move that needle back, but just allowing for the experience of how the artist and the producer decided the order of the songs, the way in which they wanted to have you hear it and listening to it. And remember like the idea that you would invite friends over or your girlfriend or whatever it might be, and just to listen to records or to listen to a new album. So that part I kind of missed.
0: Yeah, when you think about it, and as we've been discussing here, there are so many things that have disappeared really very quickly and all because of one thing, one thing being the Internet. I guess that's what makes this so fascinating. Pamela Paul has been my guest. She is the editor of the New York Times Book Review, and she is author of the book, 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet. There's a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes.
1: Thanks, Pamela. Thank you so much, Mike. It's been really fun.
3: Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business.
4: Furnished by Just Capital.
0: Doesn't matter who you are, money is always a big factor in your life, every single day. The kind of life you live is determined in large part by how much money you have, how much money you think you're going to have, and what you choose to spend it on. Money is also a source of happiness or unhappiness for a lot of people. Laura Rowley, for many years, was a journalist and columnist who wrote about money for Self Magazine and the Huffington Post, and she is author of a book called Money and Happiness, A Guide to Living the Good Life. Hi, Laura. So, as a longtime personal finance columnist, I'm sure you've talked to a lot of people about their money and their money troubles. What do you find, if there's any one thing, what do you find is at the core of the trouble, typically?
2: I found a lot of times there was a big gap between what people said they valued and what they were doing with their money. So how do you close that gap? How do you identify what you truly value and then align your money with it so you can be happy?
0: So how does that happen? How is there that separation between what I value and what I do with my money?
2: Yeah, I think I think we kind of go along and then we get out of college or we get out of school and we start to start to work. And... You make money, and then you have a lifestyle that's based on how much money you have, and you start, it kind of rolls along, and you never stop to say, well, wait a minute, what do I truly value, and how can I make my money uh, reflect that?
0: So give me a real-life example of what that looks like, what it's like to have certain values, and then what you do with your money is not in alignment with that.
2: Well, I interviewed somebody who um, told me she wanted to start her own business, and yet had uh, $10,000 in credit card debt and $30,000 in student loans and hadn't started paying them back and was spending 500 a month on entertainment, none of these things seem to be related to that goal of starting her own business. So I guess that's the simplest example.
0: Well, and I imagine anyone who says that, you know, they're very concerned about and want to make sure they have a comfortable retirement one day, but they don't do anything to save for that retirement.
2: Absolutely. Well, the other thing is I I spoke to people who said, you know, one of the things I value most is my children's education, and they hadn't saved anything for college. So it's that sort of thing. And there's reasons that we do that. Our brains kind of work against us in that respect.
0: So explain that. How how does that work?
2: There's something called a hedonic treadmill. Um, You know, when you have a great family, you usually don't say, gee, you know, I'm going to go out and get another one because this is so great. But we always do that with money and material goods. And it's really hard to get off that treadmill. And one of the the reasons, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the big things is something called the hot-cold empathy gap. It's a psychological term for when you're in a cold or neutral state, you have a hard time imagining what you would do or what you would say when you're in a hot state, when you're angry or hungry or in pain. And then when you're in a hot state, it's hard to imagine what you would do or say if you were in a cold state. And uh, psychologists have found in research that people in a who are not in a shopping situation, underestimate the urge to splurge that happens as soon as they walk into a mall. So, you know, you don't you, you think, oh, I'll just go shopping, and then at the end of the day, it's like, where did the money go?
0: Why, though? What motivates the spending for people?
2: Well, research has found that women will overspend to stay with a social group. They'll do what their friends are doing, and then if they don't have that income before they know it, they're in over their heads, men will overspend to impress other people. So it's kind of a competitive thing.
0: So what is the price we pay? What is the price for having your values and your money out of alignment like that?
2: Well, that's a great question. What what scientists have found is, for example, people who have five or more friends outside of their immediate family are 50% happier than people who don't. Well, it takes time to cultivate those friendships. And if you're so busy earning so that you can spend more and more and more, which is this hedonic treadmill we get on, you don't have time to invest in that. You don't have time to invest in your health. You don't have time to invest in volunteering, all the other aspects of your life that might make you happy. And, and the problem is we tend to overestimate how happy more money will make us. And they've done studies that have found this where, you know, they ask people, well, would you take a new job for more money if it required more time traveling, more time in the office, more time away from your family? And two-thirds of people said yes. You know, there was only one third who said they probably not. Nobody said no, you know, because we think the money will make us happier than it does. When studies have found what makes us happy is all those other things, you know, spending time with family, friendship, um, taking care of our health, and a lot of times we'll make trade um, you know, and, and sort of steal time away from those things so that we can earn more money.
0: Yeah, well, there's that old, you know, money doesn't buy happiness, uh, unless you don't have any. Um, You know, it's easy for someone with money to say, well, money's not everything. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's not everything, because you've got plenty of it or enough of it, but if you don't have enough of it, then you're going to be unhappy.
2: Well, you know, I would agree with that. A certain amount of money, and research has backed this up, a certain amount of money does make people happier. And in wealthier countries, people are generally happier than in poorer countries, and that makes sense. There's a lot of stress when you can't pay the bills, or you don't know where your next meal is coming from. On the other hand, studies have found that our happiness does not rise in proportion with our incomes. They've done studies of lottery winners and Forbes 100 um, people who earn more than $100 million a year, and their happiness levels are just slightly higher than the average person's. So... um, I guess it's that issue of keeping things in perspective and knowing that a certain amount of money will make you happy because you have to take care of your basic needs. But beyond that, you really have to start thinking about what you value most in life.
0: And I remember hearing, too, that that people who don't have money claim to worry about money a lot, that they spend a lot of time worrying about not having enough money, and that if they only had money like rich people have money, they wouldn't spend so much time worrying about it. But when they talk to rich people, they worry about money too. It's a different kind of worry, but they're still worried about money.
2: Yeah, I, I spoke recently with um, a woman who manages uh, high net worth individuals, and she says, you know, she'll get a client who's just sold a business for two hundred fifty million dollars, and one of the things she says to them is, "You have problems you don't even know about. You know, there's a whole other set of problems that comes with having that much money." So, right. Um, you know, and, and I think that the most important thing is to never say, I can't afford this, but to say, I'm making different decisions. I mean, I drive a minivan that I bought, use, <laughs> you know, that my kids have drawn all over in crayon. we got crayon melted into the carpet. It's very artistic. Um, that's not my value. You know, one of my big values is sending my kids to college and having them graduate without a mountain of debt so that they can choose any job they want without having to worry about how much they're making. And so instead of having a nice car, we put a little bit of money away every month in a 529 plan for our kids. So it's it's that kind of thing. And I actually have to, you know, I have this picture in my head of my three daughters graduating from college and choosing any job that they want, that they love, you know, choosing it because it's their passion, not because it's for money, and that kind of keeps me going when I would rather spend that 529 money on a massage <laughs> because it reminds me that I'm wealthy in the way that's most important to me, that's most authentic to me.
0: So, Laura, I think people often get confused with all the conflicting advice about money. You know, there's one school of thought that you pay yourself first, that you take care of yourself first. So do you take care of yourself first and buy that nice car? Or you do you do what this lady says and buy a crappy car and put the money in your kid's college fund? I mean, who do you believe?
2: Well, it depends on what you value. You know, what does it mean to take care of yourself? For me, what it means to take care of myself is to have enough money so that when I can't work anymore because at a certain point you can't work anymore, I can take care of myself. That, um, to me, is a form of security, and security is important to me. So, you know, identify the value first, security, and then what are the things that are going to create that value? I think one of the hardest things about happiness is we mistake temporary pleasure for long-term happiness. Long-term happiness is setting goals that are based on your values and achieving those goals. Researchers did a study, it's one of my favorite studies, where they, they put a quarter in the coin return of a phone booth, and they had people go in and make a phone call. People didn't know why they were making phone call. Some people found the coin in the, in the coin return, and some people didn't. After that, they asked people to rate the happiness of their entire life overall. Well, the people who found the quarter rated their happiness of their entire life much higher than the people who didn't. So, you know, I think it, it points up that importance of... Separating temporary pleasure from long-term happiness. And long-term happiness is something you have to really sit down and think about and decide what it is you value. And in the book, I don't say, you know, you should really value a secure retirement. I never tell people what to value, but I I go through exercises of how to figure out what it is you value.
0: Well, that brings up a... Well, by the way, that study, I mean, how would you even come up with the idea for that study? And, and, And then to realize the results of that study are that finding a quarter can make your day a quarter.
2: Isn't that incredible? Yeah, I guess it's, it also points up the importance of building in those moments during your day.
0: <laughs> well, well, I remember the days when there were lots and lots of phone booths, and uh, remember the people that used to go down the line of phone booths, you know, in the coin return thing and look for the quarter, and, and now we know why. they were just They were just looking for happiness. But still, for so many people, in talking about money and values and everything, that towards the end of the line... There's so many people we hear about that are not going to have or who don't have enough money saved up for retirement.
2: Yeah, scary. (laughs) The scary thing to me, I think, is how many people... It just the whole concept of living within your means, which, you know, is a concept that's been around for ages. and, And it's a concept for me because my parents were born during the Depression. You know, so it was, you don't get into debt, you don't get into debt, you don't get into debt. And the importance of what kind of family you come from in terms of your attitude toward money. But that's what I think scares me most about this economy, is so many people are using credit to live beyond their means, and there comes a reckoning day, you know, so it's a problem.
0: And so what's the advice? You know, a, a lot of older people live in that, if I knew then what I know now, I'd have a lot more money in the bank kind of mentality. But, but is it ever too late?
2: No, I don't think so. I don't think it's ever too late. I mean, I think, again, you have to go, you have to start with your values. You know, what kind of life do you want to have? What's most important to you? And then, you know, obviously you could say, well, I want the kind of life where I live on a yacht. That's not realistic given what you've done uh, up until this point. But I don't think it's too late. And, um, you know, I, I do think you're going to see people working much longer than in the past. Um, I took my kids to Disney World, and uh, I I was shocked how many of people working in the park were obviously in their 70s. And, you know, I sort of think, if anything, that's a good reminder for somebody in their 40s or 50s to get started. You know, even if it's $10 a week, $20 a week, something that goes automatically into a retirement account, you can do that. Anybody can come up with that amount of money. I mean, yes, it's helpful if you start at age 21, but there's no, it's never too late to start.
0: I guess in many ways, and like you said, it, it depends on the family you come from, but in many ways it's it's human nature when you're younger to not think so much about when you get older and retirement and saving for that, and then when you get older, you look back and wish
2: you had. Yeah. I think what what's the day of reckoning for a lot of people will be a harsh downsizing of their lifestyle. You know, where, you know, maybe they'll have a roommate or, or entertainment will be going to the library or... You know it it the the life they've been living now won't be as accessible in the future. I mean that's sort of the first thing that happens when you don't save um, the thing that it most intrigues me is how to get how to get people to feel that urgency, feel that call to action. I mean that's why I try to explain some of the psychology of the brain and why our our lower brains kind of work against us because you know the higher brain is where the logical cognitive functions occur, and that's where you know, you think about things like saving for retirement, but the lower brain is in charge a lot of the time when it comes to, gee, I really want to buy that.
0: So what would you say to someone, a younger person, who hasn't really thought about the future and hasn't really started to save for the future? How do you, how would you motivate them?
2: You know, this is so interesting, because somebody asked me that about my book. They say, you know, you don't have a call to action for people. And I thought, you know, living beyond your means or even living without saving at all it's similar to um, drug addiction in that you're not attached to reality. You know, and, and I don't know if you can help somebody who's addicted to drugs until they hit bottom. You know, and, and the fear I have is that for a lot of people, that's what has to happen with their money. They have to hit bottom and not be able to afford their home anymore, not be able to afford the rent on their place and have to move into a smaller place.
0: There is this assumption that you somehow can figure all this out for yourself but I would imagine that a lot of people who have a pretty secure financial life got some help. Uh, you know, talk to somebody who is like a financial planner, and I know you talk about that, the importance of, of getting some expert help, because not everybody is an expert in planning out their finances.
2: You may have options you don't know about. Uh, one of the people I interviewed said she sat down with a financial planner, and she said, what would it take to send my three kids to college? And he said, you have to save 2000 a month from now until they go to college. she said, I just can't do that. You know, but to me that was unhelpful advice because that's just, you know, now she's just throwing up her hands. You don't know if your children will get scholarships. You don't know if they'll be able to work in high school. You don't know what loans will be available. I think there's a lot of options out there. So I think it's important to be optimistic about your options, but also be realistic. Put that date on the calendar and say, I will see a financial planner by this date.
0: Do you see that a lot with the people that you talk to that, that like a drug addict, they they have to hit bottom before they, they have that epiphany?
2: I found that with the people I've spoken to. Um, you know, a lot of people email me who have gone through bankruptcy and say, you know, I can't get a credit card. <laughs> you know, well, well, what happened in between when you got that first credit card and when you declared bankruptcy? You know, it, it, some for some people, that's what it takes, is that bankruptcy to kind of shake them out of their um, fog. You know, so I guess you know my feeling is, get this message out. You have to take care of yourself. And, and that should be a primary value.
0: Well, it is interesting that something as important as money and your financial life, for many people, is so hard to get a handle on and, and really manage it well.
2: One of the things, um, psychologically, is the brain is very good at storing words, and semantic meaning and visual images. But we can't store visceral sensations in our brains. So you can't remember. You can think about a painful event or a craving you had once, but you can't actually re-experience pain or create pain or create a craving in your head. You can't create the visceral sensation of it. And I think that's part of the problem. It's impossible to imagine what it would really feel like to be old and poor. We just can't do that. So you have to kind of look around you, you know, look at those people who don't have a lot, and say, I'm not going to have that happen to me.
0: Does it get to the point, do you think, where, okay, now you've got it, you've got it nailed? I mean, you know, listening to someone like you, you would think, okay, well, she's probably got her financial life all in order. She's not lured by temptation. She doesn't, she's got her priorities, her values right. Uh, Is it easy for you? Is it easy for people who who nail this? Or is it always going to be a struggle?
2: Here's the thing. I wrote this book about um, basing your spending and your earning and your outlook on your values, And yet, I still find myself longing for the bigger house. I mean, I still find myself talking to my husband about, you know, what do you think? Could could we expand the house? Could we do that? You know, And, and in the meantime, you're getting these home equity lines of credit, like offers in the mail, because... You're a responsible person, you have decent credit, you get them from just about everybody. It's so, it's tempting to me.
0: Well, it's such an important topic because it applies to every single person listening, that their financial life, their financial future is all their responsibility, And, and it's good to get some advice from someone who's really thought this through. Laura Rowley has been my guest. For many years, she was a journalist and columnist who wrote about money for Self Magazine and the Huffington Post. And her book is Money and Happiness, A Guide to Living the Good Life. There's a link to her book in the show notes. Thank you, Laura. Now that people are getting back out and socializing, holiday parties will be coming up and you'll be meeting new people if you attend. So will you be able to remember their names? A lot of us claim that we're not very good at remembering names. I think I fall into that group. And according to memory expert Scott Hagwood, there are two big reasons why. And both of them can be overcome. First of all, when you say you're no good at remembering names, that self-talk reinforces the belief, so you just don't try. Start telling yourself you are good at remembering names, and you will automatically get better. And we don't remember a person's name when they tell us because we aren't paying attention. Usually we're thinking about what we're going to say next. You can only think about one thing at a time, so the person's name never gets into your head. But if you really focus and pay attention, you will remember the name, especially if you tell yourself you're good at remembering names. And that is something you should know. Seeing how you like this podcast, there are probably like-minded people in your life who would also like this podcast. So tell one, two, maybe three of them to give a listen. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. No matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax experts make them count. Did you maybe buy a second property to rent out? That's a move. Did you go back to school to get your degree? That too is a move, a smart move. Did you commute to work across state lines? You see, that's a move. Did you relocate for a fresh start? Well, that's the definition of a move. Maybe you moved into a house boat instead of a house house. Or perhaps you crushed it in the stock market in 2023. Turbo tax experts make all your moves count, getting you every credit and deduction you deserve, filing with 100% accuracy, and getting your max refund guaranteed. Switch to TurboTax, make your moves, and they will make them count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live.